You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. Again, we're going to be in Genesis 37. If you want to open a Bible, uh, if you have one, uh, if not, it'll be on the screen for you. We're going to cover the whole chapter. I won't read every verse uh, just for the sake of time today, um, but we're going to cover the story, the intro- introductory story of Joseph. Um, and if you know anything, if you remember Sunday school, this is the story where his brothers sell him into slavery and he's transported to Egypt from the promised land. Um, before I jump in, I actually want to begin with the Ten Commandments. Uh, God, um, in the book of Exodus, chapter 20, gives uh, his nation, his chosen nation of Israel, after they have become numerous and become and grown from one family that we see in Genesis into a great nation, he gives them Ten Commandments, which is his moral code. Um, the, the, the law that he gives them, is that he says, this is what I want you to do and abstain from doing. And um, and these Ten Commandments really represent the morality of God that He has revealed to mankind. Uh, and those Ten Commandments, the first one is, you have no other gods before me. The second one, you shall not have any graven images. Uh, thirdly, that you would not use the Lord's name in vain. Number four, that you would honor a Sabbath of rest. Number five, that you would honor your mom and dad. Um, six, do not kill. Seven, do not commit adultery. Eight, do not steal. Nine, do not lie. And ten, don't covet. Don't be jealous. And, and if you're like me, if you're a sinner like me, I look at number ten and I'm like, how'd that make the cut? Like, that's, that's not that bad, right? It's like, like, so I just did some word study this week in my sermon prep. I was like, what's this really mean? And, and the word covet just means to desire. It's like, don't, don't want stuff. You know, like, that doesn't seem that bad, especially when you're looking at a list with, like, don't kill people and don't want stuff. And God puts them on the same level. Like, I don't know if you know this, but 1 through 10 is not a ranking of severity. All right, these are 10 things um, that God says, and, and the Bible actually says if you've broken one, you've broken all of them. And, and I look at coveting, and I'm like, really, Lord? This is the expectation that we can't want stuff that we don't have yet? Well, so jealousy and coveting is the most intrinsic of those commandments. It's the, it's the most easily concealable sin, I think. It's, it's easy, like I could just be coveting all y'all's cool outfits right now. I know, you're, I know some of y'all are coveting mine. I got some new J's on today. Like, I know, I got it, you know. And, uh, you know, don't stumble. I don't want to make y'all stumble. I'll get behind the pulpit. Um, but... But you can, you can just be coveting and like no one knows, right? You can't just like secretly kill people. It doesn't normally work out. They make podcasts about it. Um, but you can kind of secretly covet. And, and the point I want to make is, as we look at this story of, of what the brothers do to Joseph is it all begins in the sin of jealousy. It all has its root in them wanting what they didn't have, wanting something that belonged to their brother. And, and if we're not careful, we will begin to have longing eyes instead of looking upward to a relationship with our Heavenly Father and our Savior Jesus and His Spirit that He's placed in us. And instead of that, we will long for what people around us have, uh, what they do. We want to do what they do. We want to be like them. We want to keep up with the Joneses, so to speak. And it will eat away at us. And it, and it actually, what it does is the Tenth Commandment takes root and it leads us to commit the other nine leads to the sins that are listed in the other nine. When it, when it takes root in our souls, it, there's no end in which jealousy will take us to. And so I, I want to show you this uh, through Joseph's story. Now, I've got five points, um, and four of the five start with J. I just want to look at the guys in this story, 
and Reuben messed it up, man. They, they were all going to be starting with Jay. I wanted to change his name to like Jubin, so they would all be Jay, but that, that doesn't work. So uh, we're going to look at these five men. Uh, firstly, Joseph, then Reuben, Judah, Jacob, and Jesus, of course, uh, to finish us off. So let's begin by looking at, at Joseph. Now, um, we're in the sixth uh, subsection of Genesis. What we did when we outlined the book of Genesis for us to go through as a church, we said, hey, we're going to break it up into these kind of patriarchal people um, that, are, that are the protagonists of different sections of the book. And so beginning with Adam, then we go to Noah, and then the family of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now Joseph. And so Joseph's the last one. It's going to take eight Sundays for us, so two more months in Genesis. Um, and that'll take us from chapter 37 through the end of the book in chapter 50. And as we look at Joseph's story, what we see about Joseph, here's what I like about Joseph, is he's the best one of all of them. He's not perfect. Um, no man in the Bible is perfect. But Joseph is like, he's like a breath of fresh air. Especially after, did y'all get sick of Jacob? Like I, I know, like, I know you didn't get sick of me preaching about him, but I got sick of Jacob. It was like, Jacob, you're messing up again. It was like every week there were just these horrible things Jacob was doing. Now what we're going to see in Joseph is, is Joseph is a type of Christ. Um, and, and we'll look a lot throughout these next several weeks at typology and how, how the character of Joseph foreshadows and leads us into um, a longing for the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And, and, and his actions and, and even sovereignly what happens to him are meant to point us to Jesus. And it's a breath of fresh air because Joseph does pretty good. He makes some mistakes, um, but he is, a, he is an exciting character to study. Um, in chapter 37, uh, let's start at verse 2. It says, These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. Now, Joseph was a younger son that, that uh, Jacob had when he was older. Um, just to recap, that, that sermon that Stephen preached where um, Jacob tries to marry Rachel, but, uh, but Laban pulls the old switcheroo. He marries Leah instead, s switches them out, and then he works another seven years and marries Rachel, and then they begin to try to have children, and both of them end up giving their servants to Jacob in marriage. Just this whole Mari Povich mess happens. And so he ends up, in, in, in the end of the story, he has 12 sons from four different women, and it's just kind of a wild story. But uh, if you know the story, Rachel is the apple of Jacob's eye. She's the one that he's always wanted and, and had been after from the beginning. And Joseph is the firstborn son of Rachel. Uh, Rachel later had another son, Benjamin, and she actually passed away while giving birth to him. And this was uh, evidently many years after um, Joseph had been born. And so Joseph here is a young man. Benjamin is, is a child at this point. I heard a comedian one time talk about uh, the, the, what he and his wife do in the bedroom every night. I know it sounds very vulgar, but he just said they eat cookies. That's all they do. And, um, and he said, yeah, and he introduced his kids. And he's like, yeah, they're 18, 16, 14, and one. And he said, yeah, we ran out of cookies one night. You know, that's, um, and that's, that's seemingly kind of what happened with, with uh, Jacob and, and some of his wives. So you have these big gaps in, in the sons and all that. Um, but here you have definite favoritism of Joseph um, because of his position in the family and a son of his old age. Now, verse 3 says that 
Jacob slash Israel, remember his name's changed to Israel, so if you hear Jacob or Israel, it's the same guy, that he loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Now, Joseph kind of plays into this a little bit, right, as one does. I, I always talk about how I'm the favorite in my family. My mom admits it freely. My sisters just have to deal with it. It's just the way it is. I'm the baby of the family, just like Joseph's baby. And, um, and, and so Joseph loves that, and he plays into it, right? And so he gets this, like, real snazzy coat. Um, he makes him a, a coat of, of many colors. And, um, and, and the brothers see this. They, they take this in, and they begin to violate the Tenth Commandment. They begin to get covetous and jealous. And Joseph begins to be a tattletale on his brothers. Um, verse 4 says, When his brothers uh, saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. And so the wedge just goes deeper and deeper that not only was there favoritism from Jacob, but Joseph has also been telling all these bad reports of the other sons to the father. And so they just keep uh, escalating and getting more and more upset with one another. And um, later in the chapter, it uses actually the same word, jealousy, uh, that, bro- that Joseph's brothers were jealous of him to the point of hating his life. Um, and again, we think jealousy is not a big deal. That just tends to be how we look at things, right? That, that when we see what our neighbors have and we want to keep up with the Joneses, we want to have the, the same or better vacation than them, car than them, house than them, whatever, and we want to go after those things, and social media doesn't help either. We get to like kind of just pick and choose who we want to be coveting. Um, and we chase after these things, and, and we fool ourselves into, into saying, well, we're just chasing success. We're just chasing things. There's nothing wrong with the things that we're uh, chasing after or desiring. But if you're not careful, it could be your downfall. That in your desire of things, you stop desiring the Lord. And in your desire of things, you start to hate the people who have the things that you don't have that you wish you did have. That's certainly what happened with Joseph's brothers. Verse 5 says, Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Now, Joseph... He's a pretty good dude, but he's pretty dumb. Um, he has this dream of his brothers bowing down to him. And now, if I have a dream about something like that, I might like the dream, but I'm not going to talk about it, right? Like, I'm, I'm not going to share it with anyone. Uh, but he goes in verses 6 through 11, he shares the dream with his, with his family. Verses 6 through 8 is the first dream, and, and basically it details that, that there are these sheaves of, of wheat or grain that are bundled up. And, and the 11 bundles of sheaves bow down to Joseph's bundles. And, uh, and so he, he tells that to his brothers, clearly indicating that they're going to kneel down to him in reverence and respect. And then the other dream in verses 9 through 11, there's a sun and a moon and 11 stars that are all bowing down to Joseph. Um, this dream is, both these dreams are offensive to not just his brothers, but even his parents as it, it's clearly indicating that they're going to bow in some sense to him as king. Um, and what's interesting is God is here revealing to Joseph the future, revealing what is going to happen later in the narrative that at our church we're going to cover in several weeks. But let me just fast forward to it a little bit in chapter 42. What happens is Joseph is sold into slavery through a lot of circumstances we'll preach through week after week. He rises to power in Egypt to the point that he becomes second in command in Egypt and, and back home a famine hits, and they have to come to Egypt to get food. They're starving to death, and they come down, and they bow down. Uh, chapter 42, verse 6 says, Joseph was governor of 
uh, over the land. And he was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. So we see clearly in Joseph's story that God's sovereign plan is working out over all of these circumstances. God reveals much to Joseph through dreams. Not only these two dreams here, but through the dreams of Pharaoh later in the narrative, through the dreams of prisoners that he ends up in jail with. Um, God works a lot through revealing these things to Joseph. And let me just give you a word of caution. Don't put too much stock in your dreams. Uh, when you have weird dreams, it's probably too much Taco Bell. That's, that's been my experience. Taco Bell's bad for your dream life. Okay? Um, <laughs> And, and, don't, and not just dreams, but, but let, me just, let me just add this caveat. Don't, don't try to follow God's will by your feelings. Uh, don't, don't look for signs and don't be a mystic. God has given us the, the word. He has given us the Bible so that we can know his will. Um, but at this time, we don't ha Joseph didn't have the written word of God, and so God is working, and, and by the way, writing it down in his word, revealing it to us. God is working through dreams to uh, reveal to Joseph exactly what the future holds for him. And so uh, he knows that God has a plan. He knows that his life is in God's hands. And, and that's what I would want to preach to you this morning is that in the same way, your life and all the circumstances of your life are in God's hands, and it might not be the clearest thing to you. It might be a little bit cryptic, just like Joseph didn't have all the details. Um, when you read Scripture, sometimes God's will seems cryptic or mysterious to you, but God's will is revealed in Scripture for your life. The Word of God is applicable to you personally. And the brothers planned to eliminate Joseph's dreams out of their life. They wanted to get rid of their brother. That, that their plan to get rid of him is actually what makes the dream come true. It's a beautiful, ironic story. At the end of Genesis, in chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph actually says to them, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. He says, your evil plan was part of God's plan. It's mind-blowing to think about. And, and for the application for you this morning is that you cannot escape God's plan, but you can embrace it. And I suggest you embrace it because most of us spend too much of our time trying to run from it or change it instead of bless it and be thankful for it. You cannot escape God's plan, but you can embrace it. And you can understand that God has a plan for your life. And even the parts of it that you don't like are going to work together for the ultimate good. That's Joseph. Let's look at Reuben. Reuben is the firstborn of Jacob. He's the oldest. Um, Reuben probably has the most to lose in this scenario that we look at in this chapter. Um, the reason he has the most to lose is because he's the firstborn. He should be, in that culture, the rightful heir to the inheritance of the firstborn. Um, and he had, he had made some mistakes, and he had fallen out of graces with his dad. But he becomes an unlikely advocate for Joseph. <clears throat> and so uh, let's, let's continue in the story in verse 13, and, and eventually we'll see how Reuben steps up in the right way. Uh, Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said, Here I am. So he said to them, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. Now notice where they are. 
They're pasturing their flocks in Shechem, the, the city of slaughter, the place where they went where God had not commanded them to go. This was the place where Jacob's daughter Dinah was raped. And they go back to operate their family business in this place. And in this place where these men had killed so many, jealousy is going to lead them to be willing to murder once more. They end up moving slightly north to Dothan. And Jacob, or Joseph, as he goes to check on them, following Jacob's command, he comes to Shechem and then to Dothan. And as he comes up on his brothers, we see their scheme beginning in verse 18. They saw him from afar. So the brothers see Joseph from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. So they come up with this plan, and they conspire together, it says. And as they're conspiring together, Reuben is sitting there listening to it. Reuben is at a place of high tension with his father. The reason is in chapter 35, verse 22, um, more Mari Povich-type drama. This is more like Jerry Springer, a less classy uh, talk show host than Mari. Um, Reuben had slept with his stepmom, Bilhah. So he had slept with his father's wife and caused a lot of friction in the family, as one does when that happens. And, and keeping with uh, Jacob's family tradition, he's going to try to get back in good graces in a sneaky way. So instead of standing up from the table and speaking to his brothers and saying, this isn't right, guys, we can't kill our brother, this is wrong, he's, he decides he's going to save Joseph, but he's going to do it in a sneaky way. And probably mingled in this is the desire that, yeah, I slept with my stepmom and I got to redeem myself. It's like a dumb and dumber moment. Totally redeem yourself. If I save the, the little boy, then, uh, then dad will forgive me for that. Okay? So he begins his plan in verse 21. Reuben hears of it and he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. And then it gives us his intention that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many collars that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. And so you have this just terrible injustice that comes once again to Jacob's family. Reuben is in the midst of a plan to try to rescue Joseph, but for the moment, Joseph isn't aware of that. He's thrown into this pit. Um, he is stripped of his, his uh, favorite robe that his father has given him, um, maybe stripped of his other clothes as well. And for the moment, J- Joseph is alone. He's scared. Um, he's naked to some extent. He is most likely even injured. There's probably physical violence involved in this, so he's probably injured. And he, he just finds himself in this pit, pitiful moment to, to just encompass the whole word. This pitiful moment where his needs are unmet, there's nowhere to turn, there's no one to hear him. And, and what I love about Scripture is it takes moments like this, and, and these are real events that really happen, but Scripture allegorizes these things and applies them broadly to the human story. 
That, that, that in our lives, all of us have probably had moments where we felt like we're in a proverbial pit, that there's no one to hear us when we cry out, that there's no one for us to turn to, that there's, there's no water, there's no sustenance or you know, needs being met by anyone around us, and we feel utterly helpless. And it is exactly at these moments where God wants to reveal himself most clearly. Because we see God most clearly when everything else is stripped away from us. That's the reality of it. Because of our sinful depravity, we'll focus on all the other things and refuse to focus on God until all the other things are stripped away. And so Joseph, in the midst of all of his fear, is actually in the position for him to be used by God the most. A lot of preachers, when they preach on this, I've seen multiple sermon series about Joseph specifically titled something like, From Pit to Prince. Because he, he goes from uh, the depths of this pit to princehood in Egypt and being second in command and one of the most powerful men in the world. And, and it, it serves a purpose of an allegory for us that those of us who are far from God, unsavable from any other human ways, that God would reach down and not just pull us out of the pit, but then make us spiritual royalty. Psalm 103 uses the same language of the pit. Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not all his benefits, who forgives your iniquity, who heals your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. You see, even in the the, the songs that Jesus sang in church, they use the allegory and the language of being in a pit and then lifted up and then crowned with steadfast love and mercy from God. And while Joseph is in a pit, scared to death, his brothers are arranging to sell him as a slave. We'll talk more about that in a moment, but apparently while the brothers are making this plan to not leave him for dead, but to make a profit off of him, Reuben um, isn't with them. And he returns later to the pit to rescue Joseph, to pull him up and bring him back to the father and totally redeem himself. And verse 29 says, when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? And you have this expression. It's a little bit unclear in English when he says, Where shall I go? What, what this expression means, he's expressing exasperation for Joseph's disappearance. And essentially he's saying, How in the world am I going to give an account for my brother's disappearance? And the reason I think this is so powerful is because it's because Reuben is acting in an antithetical way to another brother in Genesis chapter 4 when the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he smarts off to God and he says, I do not know, am I my brother's keeper? That Reuben here is acting as we should act in the church, that we should, we should be utterly defeated when we can't look out for our brothers and sisters. Reuben here is the oldest, is the most responsible one, and he is, he is held with the command of keeping his younger brother safe and making sure that his well-being is kept. And he says, where shall I go? He has failed at his job. And so church, I want you to be reminded by Reuben's exasperation today that you are your brother's keeper. Don't have the attitude of Cain that you don't care what happens to other people as long as it doesn't affect you that you should be rightly concerned with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Listen, one of the things that's trending right now is those hateful welcome mats. You know, like introverts love them. It's like the welcome mat that just says, go away, right? Um, they're funny. There's nothing sinful about them. But, but just let it be a welcome mat. Don't let it be the attitude of your heart, okay? That, 
that we are actually called by God to be brothers and sisters in one another's lives for the mutual benefit of God's kingdom, to protect one another, to care for one another. And so even though Reuben was a great sinner, we should seek to emulate this heart that he shows. Let's move on to the third man, Judah. Joseph's thrown into the pit, and his brothers go and they sit down and they have a meal together without Reuben. Reuben is evidently not included. He's not invited to this meal. They're sitting down, they're eating, and they're kind of planning. Uh, what they're planning is the murder of Joseph. Whether they're going to leave him to starve to death in the pit, whether they're going to physically kill him, um, what's going to happen, and, and the story that they're going to tell to their dad. And while they're sitting there eating, these traveling Ishmaelites, um, again, from the, branch, from the family branched off from, uh, from Abraham's uh, relationship with Hagar, these tradesmen are en route to Egypt, and they, come, they pass by on the road that they're on. And Judah becomes the ringleader of this plot to sell Joseph into slavery. Verse 26 says, Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him. For he's our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listen to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Now, you remember those uh, unsure motivations of Jacob? We talked about him acting kind of like a sleazy car salesman. We're just not sure what his actual motivation is. It's kind of the same thing here with his son Judah. Uh, some commentators actually look at Judah's actions and they say that he's just not able to follow through with murder, that guilt became, be, begins to get at him, that, that he says, hey, we can't, we can't actually kill our brother. That's not something we can follow through with. And so rather than just repent of the whole thing, he compromises and, and decides to sell him. Others say he would have been totally fine with murdering him, but he would rather make money off of getting rid of his brother. I tend to believe that. I think this evil has overtaken him, and, he, and not only is he willing to get rid of his brother, uh, but he doesn't care what happens to him, and he just wants money in the process. Whatever the case, though, he's clearly not being his brother's keeper like Reuben is, and his influence makes it clear that neither are the other brothers. Uh, there's a disregard for Joseph's life, um, that they, go, they, they escalate so clearly. We, our church shared a meme on social media this week of the, skept, the steps that were skipped to get to selling Joseph into slavery. It's like, maybe just steal his coat. Maybe, that, maybe you could just do that. Or maybe tell your dad that his favoritism is hurtful to you or, or what have you. And instead, they skip all those steps and let's just sell him into slavery. But in reality, this is what jealousy does. It takes root. It, it, it infests and, and sinks down into our souls, and it leads us into other sins all the time. If you miss everything I'm saying, let me, let me make sure you take this home with you. Sin always grows. It always does. Sin always grows. Galatians 5, 9 says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. The, the, the um, analogy that's being used in the Bible to compare sin to something is, is yeast permeating through bread, which causes it to rise. At communion today, we'll use unleavened bread. It's, it's unleavened to represent Jesus' life because he had no sin. Leaven was used in Scripture as a comparison to sin, and it needed eradicated. And the way that leaven would spread throughout bread um, was an illustration of how sin will spread through our life. Maybe a, a good analogy for us today is kudzu. Y'all seen kudzu take over stuff? It just grow up over school buses and uh, telephone poles and hillsides, and it just like cover everything. 
That's how sin is, that if, if you don't take care of it, it will always grow. It's really like a cancer, that without treatment, it, sin will grow and it will spread to other areas. And you can see the escalation of, of sin in Joseph's brother's hearts, that what begins as jealousy leads them into hatred, and that hatred then leads them to physical violence, that violence leads them into a willingness to murder, and that willingness to murder leads them to greed and selling their brother into slavery. And we like to look at our little sins in our life and minimize them and justify them and say we're not that bad, but in reality, they will lead us to dark and terrifying places if we don't take care of them early. John Owen famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Fourthly, let's look at Jacob's reaction to this whole thing. Now remember, Jacob's still living He's present in the narrative, but he's no longer the protagonist of the story. He's the old dad. And seeing his sons carry out deceit is what he's witnessing. He's watching them carry out this deceit and trickery just like he had his whole life. And here they play a horrible trick on an old man. Verse 31, it says, They took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the, blood, dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many collars and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. And Jacob tore his garments and put on sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Jacob here is incredibly and understandably distraught. And notice at this point, Reuben is going along with it. We don't have his exact words recorded, but he's there. He doesn't unveil the plot to Jacob. Um, he is compromised at this point, even though he had good motivations, he doesn't stick with them. Another uh, fearful example for us that even though we might want to do the right thing at many times, fear of other things will lead us to compromise, whether it was fear of his brothers or fear of his father for not protecting Joseph, whatever the case, here he is going along with the lie to Jacob. And Jacob says, could not be comforted. Verse 35 says, all his sons and daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. And I'll focus on Jacob's words here. That he says, I will go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Sheol is often translated as hell, and it's confusing for us because we think, we think when we think of hell, we think of like the lake of fire and you know, the devil with a pitchfork and all these things. But, but the Hebrew idea of Sheol was, was the place of the dead. And actually it was a place where there was a righteous side of Sheol and there was an unrighteous side of Sheol. And, and so, so the righteous, those who loved God, went to Sheol, but also those who were wicked went to Sheol. And this place was just a, a place of afterlife that still longed for redemption. This is why when Jesus died, it was said that he, he went under the earth uh, to, to bring victory to them. And, and so this Sheol that, that Jacob mentions is, is the word for the place of the dead. And, and another word that was often used in replacement of Sheol, we would say hell. And if we don't want to say hell, we would say, what, like H-E double hockey sticks, right? They would say the pit. And I don't think it's coincidental that, that the common word for Sheol was the pit, and, and this place that Jake, Jacob doesn't even know that Joseph was stranded and scared in this pit, but he says, I will go down to the pit to my son mourning. 
Isaiah 38 uses the, the, both of these words from both of these men to describe the same thing. Sheol does not thank you. Death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. And the pit is not just where Joseph ended up. Again, it's indicative of all humanity's story. It's representative of humanity's need to be rescued. The place of the dead was called the pit because it was the grave of depravity. Death was the curse that entered into the narrative in Genesis chapter 3. That our depravity has damned all of us to a pit that we cannot climb out of ourselves. Our sin has cursed us to this position where we are unable to be saved without a perfect rescuer coming for us. And like Joseph, we are in a helpless place before Christ, needing someone to come and rescue us. And here's how rescue will come, through slavery. And it's not a popular point to preach because we like to think of Jesus pulling us out of the pit and being like, thanks dude, see you in heaven after my life is over. But the picture of salvation is one of when we are saved, we are bought with a price and we become slaves to a good master. Every time Paul the Apostle introduces himself, he calls himself doulos, which means slave. And so like it or not, if you've repented of sin and trusted in Jesus, praise his name that he's pulled you out of the pit, but you've got to realize you're a slave to him. You have been enslaved, but here's the good news, to a good master. It's not a begrudging enslavement. It is one that we are joyful to enter into. We are happy servants and slaves to a good Savior who has redeemed us. And his name is Jesus. And that's my fifth and final point. Let's look at how Jesus is in this story. Now, I know you could look at this and be like, well, Jesus ain't in this story. I get that his name's not there. But the book of Genesis isn't just about Adam and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. It's about Jesus. Ultimately, the whole book is about Jesus. Everything's about him. I read from a pastor this week named Eric Raymond, and he wrote about Joseph. When we collect the details of Joseph's life, we see a glorious reflection that closely mirrors another life we are so intimately familiar with. In fact, when you look at a list of the details, sometimes it's hard to discern whether we are talking about Joseph or Jesus. This is not because Joseph was Jesus' favorite Bible hero he wanted to emulate. It is because God is sovereign and he has been laying the tracks for the glory of Christ throughout redemptive history. And so it's important that as we read from the pages of our Bible, that, that we don't just see what the words on the pages say, but we also have a proper interpretation of those words. It's what Bible scholars call hermeneutics, the art and science of biblical interpretation that we're able to rightly interpret what God has said. And oftentimes in the Old Testament, it's confusing for us. And so I've told you before, and I'll keep telling you, in the Old Testament, if you're met with something that's confusing, the best commentator on the Old Testament is the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. And Jesus gives us the answer when he says the book of Genesis is about him. In Luke 24, 27, he's on the road to Emmaus with some of his disciples, and it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted, there's the word of hermeneutics, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That Moses, the author of Genesis, was actually, by God's inspiration, writing about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. These similarities are striking. You see, the more Joseph proclaimed himself to be a king as he told about his dreams and said, y'all are going to bow down to me. God has revealed this to me. The more that he 
proclaimed himself to be a king the more he was hated. That sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? That the more that Jesus talked about his kingdom, the more that he talked about his authoritative teaching, the more that he uh, put on display his um, ability and authority to forgive sins, the more men wanted to kill him. Like Joseph, also, Jesus was stripped of his clothing in humiliation. John 19.23 says, When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier, and also his tunic. This fulfills Scripture that they gambled for his, <clears throat> his clothing as he is being crucified. And, and symbolically, I think that he is ident- Joseph is, is foreshadowing Jesus when he is stripped of his righteous robe and thrown into this pit. Also, like Joseph, Jesus was sold out and betrayed for silver and by men with the same name. Get that. Judas is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Judah. In Matthew 26, one of the twelve, whose name was Judas, went to the chief priest and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver, actually recorded in secular history as well as in Scripture, the going rate for an able-bodied, fully-grown male slave was 30 pieces of silver. It was the price that was put on a human life. Now, what's interesting in Joseph's story, he's betrayed by Judah and sold for 20 pieces of silver because he is incomplete, imperfect. He's 17. He's a mama's boy and a daddy's boy wearing a rainbow coat. He's scrawny, little, overpowered by his brothers. He's not fully grown enough yet to be worth 30 shekels, and so he, his going rate is 20. But Jesus is complete. He gets the going rate of 30 pieces of silver, and here he is horribly betrayed by another Judah into the hands of his enemies to be taken into custody. Also, maybe most impactful in the story of Joseph's brothers, they... They bring about blood. They kill a goat. That they use the blood to put on Joseph's coat. And in their sinful jealousy, they they imperfectly attempt to atone for their sins. You hear me use the word atonement a lot when I talk about the cross of Jesus Christ. Atonement means to cover. And so these brothers use the the, the blood of this goat to cover their sins. It's imperfect, and it's motivated out of more sin. But in Jesus' story, unlike Joseph's, he, he is the one who's spilling the blood. He is the one who's initiating death. He is the one who could save himself from the cross at any moment, yet he stays there so that his life could be given in place of ours, and the atonement that we are given, it covers our sins perfectly and finally. He is the sacrifice that covers sin. And so in Joseph's story, we see Jesus' story before it happens. And I just want you, I want to finish by this. Imagine being on the road to Emmaus. That happened after Jesus rose from the dead, by the way. So you're already walking with a guy who had already died and come back, okay? So that's amazing enough. But these men that he's teaching on that road, as he's walking, as he's saying, beginning from Moses and the prophets, he began to tell them about how all the scriptures testify to him. And as this is happening, imagine being one of those young men that had grown up and studied the Old Testament their entire lives. 
No doubt they had flannel graphs of Joseph and the coat of many colors and all of that. They, they had done all that. They went to Saturday school because they, they worshipped on Saturday, not Sunday. They didn't have Sunday school. They did Saturday school. Um, that, was, that was before ALC and all that stuff. But, um, and and they, they just knew that it was ingrained in them, but they didn't quite fully have the meaning. And they walk on the road with Jesus, and he begins to say, yeah, you know how his coat was stripped? My coat was stripped. Remember, you saw it in the courtyard. You know how they slaughtered that goat? I was slaughtered for your sins. You know how they, they sold him for 20 pieces of silver? I had to complete 30 pieces of silver as Judah betrayed me so that I could step in and be the sacrifice for all mankind. And the light bulbs come on and their minds are blown and they begin to see, man, the whole story, the whole time was all, always about Jesus. God's plan is eternal. And he's had it planned from before the foundations of the world so that when we look at Scripture, and when we rightly interpret Scripture, that we can see He is sovereign over the whole thing, and we can echo the sentiment of Joseph in Genesis 50, which says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. That the things in your life that have happened have not been outside of God's control, and He has meant it for your good. And if you have not given your life to Him, you're still in His plan. You might as well surrender your life to Him. You might as well freely call out to him and ask for forgiveness and let him pull you from the pit and joyfully become his servant for the rest of your life because his plan will succeed. Why would we not give our entire lives and being to him, our good Savior who came and suffered on our behalf to save us from the pit of depravity? We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.